0: This
1: episode was brought to you by Curex Gooder and X Endurance. More in that later.
0: When I see myself in the Olympic trials, I see myself with a flag over my shoulders. I think there's a very distinct difference between a dream and a goal. And that's my dream to be an Olympian, to wear the US flag, to do the victory lap. Like, that's a dream. Tangible goals, on the other hand, are daily, they're monthly, they're weekly, you know. So, my goal is to make the final and then see what happens. And when I get to that final, I'm gonna make a goal
1: to make the team. That was Dana Giordano, and this is the Running On Own podcast. Hey everyone, welcome, welcome to, or welcome back to the Running On Own podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I am so grateful that you, yes you, you've chosen to tune in today. Here on the Running On Own podcast, we feature long form style conversations with women in endurance sports and in the outdoors. Now, although these conversations, they focus on women's stories in particular, I always say this and I mean it. This podcast, it's for everyone to listen to and hopefully be inspired and empowered by. Today's podcast conversation with Dana Giordano is a really special one. Dana is a professional middle distance runner and the host of the More Than Running podcast. Dana runs for the Boston Athletic Association, and she lives in Boston. Now, we got to record this interview in person, which was such a treat, as the majority of my interviews during this time of COVID have been via Skype. Dana is full of stories, wisdom, and just has an amazing perspective on all things life and running. In our conversation, we discussed how and why Dana started her podcast, More Than Running, which I'm a huge fangirl of, and I encourage you to check out. Dana reflects on her college running career at Dartmouth, her transition to professional running after working a job at Reebok for a few years. Dana explores the distinction between a dream and a goal, and she shares her dreams and goals for this upcoming Olympic year. This was such a fun conversation, and I am so excited to watch Dana take on the Olympic Trials in 2021. If you tune in today and this conversation resonates, as always, please reach out to Dana and I on Instagram and consider sharing this conversation with someone you know. Okay, friends, let's do this. Let's dive deep with the inspirational Dana Giordano. Tell me about your podcast. What inspired you to start it?
0: So my friend Chris Chavez works, he owns and works for Sidious Mag, which is a running website media thing. I don't know. Like it's kind of hard to think, say so yeah, like a media website, whatever they are. And he sent me a microphone this past fall and was like, you should start a podcast. And the only podcasts that I'd really listened to were like Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, How I Built This, like 30 for 30, like these pretty big podcasts. And Sidious Mag podcast occasionally when it was a guest that I was interested in, but I didn't really listen to anything quite running related. And I kind of had always been frustrated by media coverage in running and especially as, um, so I ran professionally I signed my contract about a year ago and I remember thinking like, why aren't all my my friends getting any media coverage? Like why aren't the people that I know that are really cool and interesting getting anything picked up about them, you know? And this is not to knock down anyone who does get that media coverage, but it's like there's a lot of Shalane, there's a lot of Kara Goucher, there's a lot of these like phenomenal men, women who we know a lot about, but I don't know. People don't know a lot about my friends. People don't know a lot about the women that I see breaking through. And I felt like there was some sort of odd disconnect between the stories that I wanted to hear and the stories were being told, specifically about women's professional running. And then when I was developing the idea around what to do, what to call it, and how to like really synthesize this into a product of a podcast. I was like, okay, yes, it's going to be about running, but I do want it to be around the things that I know about people that people don't often share or the things, the questions that aren't typically asked. So that is the intention is to ask the questions that aren't typically asked.
1: Yeah. And you're doing such a beautiful job. I've listened to probably like four episodes thus far. and Thank you. Yeah. Before we started recording this podcast, I was we were just talking about how it can be hard to listen to yourself. And I'm just so amazed at your natural capacity to ask questions and to draw people out of themselves. It seems like it's actually a really natural fit for you. Yeah.
0: I've always felt... Um, first of all, thank you so much. It definitely is... Um, You get really like the butterflies before it launches every time. Like, okay, because there's something very vulnerable about your voice. And I think they do say that the way you hear yourself is not the way other people hear you because of your skull. So (laughs) this is very strange. But the, the reverberations within your skull are always going to change the way you hear yourself. So that being said, it is... You being really honest and like putting yourself out there in a way that I had done before. And so every time I go and try to ask these questions, I want it to be questions that I stand by. And I think I feel really more comfortable when I'm speaking than putting up just pictures and things like that. So I've kind of struggled with social media over the past couple years. Um, especially now being a professional runner and having that be a large part of my career is showing what I'm doing because I I like to talk. That's a big part of what I like. So I think podcasts play into that.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful way to connect. And you spoke to telling the untold stories. What for you do you feel like is an untold story about you, Dana? Oh, wow.
0: An untold story. Well... I think an untold story about me, and I guess there's a lot, but one of the big ones is, um, and I did tell this story at one point, what was about kind of um, how I got into running. And I, before high school, I had a pretty large surgery. I had um, a large ovarian teratoma, which is kind of like a tumor situation. It was malignant, so it was cancerous. Um, But it was contained, so I didn't have to do any chemotherapy or anything like that. But it really, I had done like this pretty extensive surgery when I was 14. And my identity prior to that was being the athlete. I played ice hockey, I played soccer, I did all the sports, I was good at them. Um, And I didn't really have any adversity in my life prior to that. So it was kind of a pivotal moment of me as a person and through that, my freshman year, I went out for the soccer team and was benched on the freshman team. So there's like varsity, JV, and then freshmen. And I wasn't even playing at the freshman team. Let it be known, like my my poor coach was probably horrified at me. I probably weighed like less than 100 pounds, had literally just had surgery. And she's like, I'm probably scared that this girl's going to injure herself. So respect her to being like, I don't know about this one. But, yeah, that's kind of how I got into running was like finding a community that felt a little more accepting of like my, my growth as a person. and um, yeah, so the, after that, so like I wasn't really playing soccer. I kind of fell into track, and I was always running and like pretty good at like running around like midfielder soccer, pretty classic story. Um, but I Was, did indoor track and it just like clicked pretty naturally. And since then, I've really had a very, very steady, slow progression of like improvement year over year, season over season. And I think last summer was the first season of my life that I didn't get a personal best. And that's something I'm pretty proud of, you know? I think you hear a lot about these like massive breakthroughs and, crazy gains, but you don't hear a lot about the small marginal gains, the grinders, the people who show up every day, did their job and kind of made it through. So it started out with like this bang in the beginning of like this surgery element. But after that, I had really no complications, no follow up after that. Um, But yeah, I think that's something people don't know about me is that's kind of how I started my running, And I did do a thing a, thing a couple years ago, like fundraising for the hospital that I got my surgery. I did put my story out there a little bit, but it felt like it was just a little blip of sharing it and it's not like a part of who I am. So I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't know about me.
1: Yeah, I mean, 14 years old for that to happen is a really um, like pivotal time in one's identity to have such a intense and I can imagine slightly traumatic experience. Yeah,
0: definitely no confidence there.
1: Yeah, is it something that you think about
0: daily? I don't think about it daily anymore. I think it really shaped my high school experience. I didn't love high school. I kind of always felt like I I think everyone thinks this. Like think you're so different. You don't fit in high school. Maybe some people don't, but personally, most of that I talked to were like Ugh, high school. But yeah, I think it always made me feel like I had this different outlook on life a little bit, like from a younger age. And I didn't know what that was. And I was not like cognitively thinking about how I was different. It was just more of that I wasn't clicking with what everyone else was doing. And I almost felt like I was this salmon swimming upstream, you know, like this happened and it was before high school. And then I had to go through, like, the very typical experience. And I actually did have another follow-up surgery, much smaller, less intense, the next summer. But, yeah, it it was a completely, like, crushing experience because every three to six months I had to go and get these follow-up scans. And because it was cancerous, I had to go to Sloan Kettering Hospital in the beginning, which is in New York City, which is one of, like, the world's top cancer institutions the thing is I wasn't that sick like I had a surgery and then it was done like I wasn't actively sick but every single time I went in and had to get like a scan a follow-up like I probably had more MRIs than anyone anyone I know because every three to six months so it's like a five-year follow-up after you get cancer you kind of have to like get these Mm -hmm. scans over and over again and then when I had that second surgery it added like The clock reset and I had to do another five years. So it was really six years of three months, every three months for the first couple years, and then every six months of these like pretty intensive hospital visits, scans, things like that. And I was at Sloan Kettering, I honestly felt guilty that I had hair. I felt guilty that I was healthy. So every time I went to go one of these like healthy checkups, I felt like sick and weak again. Mm. Yeah. So it was a really strange high school experience in that manner. But I I don't think about that anymore at all. I don't know when that happened. Yeah, I I, uh, wasn't really able to talk about it for a long, long time. I would like, my voice would crack. I would get like teary. But I think it's just an age thing, you know, perspective.
1: Yeah. When you went to Dartmouth, did you carry that experience like with you? Because it sounds like that was really a part of your high school experience.
0: Yeah, I think by the time my senior year came around, I was so ready to go to college. I was so excited to be, you know, like, this is so cliche, like reinvent myself, you know? like No one knows me here. I get to be whatever I want. And it truly was like that. It was pretty like there, you know? And I felt like I fit in immediately. I found my people. The team was amazing. And, um... After my first semester, I like felt like I could be a student there. My first semester, I was like, I just got into Dartmouth. like I don't have to try that hard. And then I was like, oh my gosh, shoot, I got to really try. This is a hard place. What did you study at Dartmouth? I was a psychology major and a human-centered design minor.
1: Whoa. Mm-hmm. Wow. Do you have a favorite course that you can remember a favorite teacher?
0: Yeah, so my minor, the human-centered design, is it was brand new when I got to Dartmouth and it was all about designing products for people. And so there's this very classic course it's in the engineering department, but I always called it pret engineering because it was just fun. And it's called design thinking. And it was based on the, um, design methods of the D school at Stanford and IDEO. I don't know. That's actually mm-hmm. here in Cambridge too. Um, the people who invented the Apple mouse, um, so many things. And it was the first time that I was like, this is how my brain works. I found my people that know like how I think, that enjoy the building of something versus just like standard coursework. I loved like getting my hands into things and I was like, I could, I would get so excited about the projects and I just loved it.
1: (laughs) Let's take a quick break for me to share with all of you about curex curex are an insole company designed by german sports scientists for folks who tune in regularly to rue you know that i've had plantar fasciitis and a range of foot related issues the last two years that have actually kept me from consistent running well when curex sent me a pair of insoles this winter i didn't know what to expect And oh my goodness, they have been game-changing for me. I've finally been able to run pain-free, and this is in large part due to Curex's insoles that have provided my feet with their comfort and a dynamic arch support. Now, if you aren't injured, Curix's insoles are just still an incredible way to keep your feet happy and resilient. They have insoles for a range of different sports, including cycling insoles that I've been riding in regularly. And Curix is offering a 15% discount for RUE listeners. You can go online at www.curix.us, enter the code RUE15 for your discount. Curix also offers a 60-day warranty, even if you custom cut your insoles to fit your shoes. How amazing is that? Okay, let's get back to our conversation with Dana. So how is that like building that creative energy that sounds like within you, how is that showing up in your life currently as a professional runner?
0: It is definitely something when I, um, so I run for the Boston Athletic Association and um, I think I really struggled in the beginning of being a professional runner of not having an outlet for that. And Prior to running professionally, I I worked at Reebok as a product manager working on running footwear and then a brand manager working on like photo shoots and things like that. So I definitely had an outlet when I was working. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm still figuring it out. I don't know. I mean, the podcast is part of it, but I have like one of those little notebooks. That was something I learned in the class. It was like always carry a notebook, always write things down. And my notebook is just full of ideas. So something will come of it eventually, but...
1: Can you share one idea that's been on your mind or heart over the past like six months? Yeah. Oh, let me think. Um,
0: I think one thing that's really I've had a passion for is trying to engage high school women in the sport of running. And just I don't have a specific like concrete idea how to do this, but why do high school boys care about professional running and the people in the sport and high school girls don't. And so I've kind of taken that, that question as like my thesis of trying to crowdsource and figure it out and using my experience as a high school girl at one point and coaching at a high school this past fall. And I definitely haven't cracked the code, but I think there is a pretty big barrier of, um, well, I could never do that. Like what you're doing is unachievable. So I'm not going to try. Versus I, from what I've seen, a lot of high school boys have a lot more confidence and belief in themselves to think that that could be me. Versus high school women, it's not their dream to be a professional runner. And I just want to know why. You know, like, why don't more women think that way? Like, why isn't that that dream? Because that definitely wasn't my dream in college, even, to be a professional runner. Like, I thought I would be done with the sport, completely. And it came back to me. But yes, yeah, so that's been kind of the thought I've been simmering over for the past couple months and researching and observing. A big part of the human-centered design is observing.
1: Yes. And I want to hear a little bit about what you spoke to just now of thinking, you know, you not wanting to be a professional runner when you graduated from Dartmouth and here you are mm-hmm. four years later.
0: Yeah, it's running professionally. four
1: years I think I graduated
0: like June 8th, 2016. It's like almost four years to the day. So sad. Yeah. What would you want to say to that, Dana? Yeah. So four years ago, I had a pretty wild last month of school because I was, we only had a few people qualify at Dartmouth for regionals. And then from the regional system, you qualify to nationals and nationals, there's, um, two rounds in the 1500, and so I came to my coach in the fall and I said, Courtney, I want to do cross country in the fall and I want to do the 3K indoors and I want to do the 15 outdoors. And for some reason he was like, okay, sure, do that. Like, This is your life, whatever. But I was like, I have a plan, we'll do the three-season taper. And I ended up like through balancing school, the end of senior year fun, Like, I always had that element to it, the social element, I ran a pretty large personal best at regionals. I think I had like six, seven personal best at regionals in the 1500. Wow. Like I won the Ivy League championship in the 1500 and the 5K. And then we went to regionals and I played, did really well at regionals. And then at nationals, I had like one of the top seed, not one of the top seed times, but I, one of the top qualifying times from semis and I got third. And I think I peered by 11 seconds over the course of two weeks. <laughs>
1: That's bananas. Which is crazy.
0: But I think it goes to show that like in the Ivy League, we're often not challenged to our potential. It's a lot more, at least the conference level, it's very just competitive within your own. You're not in these bigger conferences running insane times like that. So I think I had a lot of untapped potential, but also a lot of like confidence that I had done the work and I was ready to bust it out. But I remember thinking to myself, like, well, I don't even want to go to nationals because this isn't during senior week. (laughs) Like, I was so unprepared to think that I could have achieved on the national level that I was like, well, I'm going to miss graduation. I don't want to miss graduation. I've worked too hard. Versus other schools, people are like, I'm going to think to USAs. I'm going to think bigger. So once I got third at the national championship, I missed the award ceremony, got on a red eye, flew back to Boston, drove up two hours, and made it to my graduation by 8 a.m. the next morning. And then the next day, I flew to Thailand with my girlfriends. And what I didn't realize at the time, and this goes to show like my weird brain at work, was that I was very close to making the Olympic trials standard, which was 409 at the time. And some of my competitors who went to schools, who that was more of a, focus, did another race and ended up qualifying for Olympic trials. So I'm sitting literally across the world in a cool place with my friends looking at the descending order list for Olympic trials. Like a crazy person. And I ended up being the 31st person on the list and they take 30. And I think it was at that moment that I was like, why wasn't that a goal for you? Like why didn't you know about this? Like, why didn't I know about the Olympic trials? And I think part of it was my teammate, and your friend, Abby D'Agostino, I kind of put those goals as like, oh, that's something that Abby does. That's something that people who win nationals do. You know, like I, ne- I didn't even know what USAs was. Like I didn't even know people who did that outside of Abby. Like Abby was the only person I knew who can be at that higher level. So long story back to your point, um, I think I would have told myself in that moment to dream a little bit bigger and look a little bit outward, but I wouldn't change a thing because I had so much fun. That 10 weeks of Dartmouth spring was just like a total whirlwind, but I was really happy. And I think that's when I raced the best is when I was really
1: happy. Yeah. Wow. That's a really powerful just time, like all those things that happened and you recognizing that in Thailand and seeing yourself like 31st. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about the 2016 nationals where you did place third in the mm-hmm. 1500. What was that race like? Like, what did it feel like during that race? Yeah. Bring
0: me there. So in the prelim. I think this is just a thing that I got from HEPs to like, I like to race them to the front, which is any coach would tell you like, don't do that. Like don't waste your energy. Don't go to the front. But in the prelim, I just like, for some reason, I mean, my coach, my coach will never listen to this. But if he did, he'd be like, no, you're just being, you're just being dumb. But I went to the front and I kind of led my prelim wire to wire and I ran the 4.13 and I just felt so good. And it was like, It was easy for the first time, you know, like the preparation meeting opportunity for the first time, like really feeling like from conference to regionals to nationals, I really felt so confident that I'd done the work already. And I've always been a highly, highly competitive person, like whatever sport that I'm doing. Um, Yeah, but I leading into that final, as I said before, I wish I had a bigger goal to win. And I think my goal was just place as high as you can. And I did that and I placed pretty high, but I really wish that I had the goal that I could have won because the way the race went was, I think I ended up in the lead again and going around to the second to last lap I got past. Um, by Elise Crania and Marta Frites. And so leading to the final lap, those two were in front of me and they ended up getting one-two in the race. Marta won, barely. And I think after they passed me and I like had in my brain already that they were better than me, that I just like let it happen. And I ended up getting passed by Shannon Osika, who is also a phenomenal runner and a friend. And that was my fight. In the final straightaway, like she passed me and then I passed her back. And I got that third spot the last spot but I remember and I was so happy I was completely ecstatic and it was only like it's a classic runner thing to not be satisfied later maybe that was the best I could have done for the day but I do wish that I like I fought the different fight like I fought for first not third
1: yeah that's kind of interesting it's almost like fighting to actually be a champion, Mm -hmm. to actually believe in yourself being like, I can be first. There's a difference there. Oh yeah. Committing to that level of confidence. Yes. And it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, It's also not like culturally really celebrated to be able to like, be like, I think I can be first. Especially in women.
0: 100% not a woman. Why is
1: that? Especially, I mean, as you know, in women's distance running, why is that? I I don't
0: really know. I think we're uncomfortable with women being confident and it comes off as this like confident versus cocky thing. But like when I actually got into watching professional running, I always loved watching Jenny Simpson cuz she's so confident. And part of me is like where does that come from? And I think some people mistake the fact. They're like, "Well, I'm just not as talented as she is." Like she broke 4 minutes in college in the 1500. And I think the best people, though, have that, like, inherent self-belief that, like, why not me? Like, why not me? Like, today, it's going to happen. Um, Olympic trials marathon example, Jake Riley, he, <laughs> when he took that flag, he took a flag in the final straightaway when he was still racing people to the finish. And he just, like, he decided, he's like, oh, I'm making this team. And I think those are the moments that I love in sports when people are just like, "No, I'm doing it. Like, there's you're not going to stop me. I am going to do it."
1: So, how is that spirit, that energy of "Why not me"? How did that factor into you transitioning to running professionally after working in Reebok?
0: Yeah. So, when I was at Reebok, I was pretty involved in the formation of their professional running team, the Reebok Boston Track Club. um, and I was trying very, very hard, maybe naively, so, to figure something out where I could work and run, because, as you said, like I, as I said before, like I do struggle with kind of having one thing to do. like I'm very good at being busy I'm very good at multitasking, I enjoy it. I like feeling I kind have of a purpose. Um, so I was really like maybe going down the wrong channels, but When I was working on the creation of this team, this idea, I'm like, oh, another professional running team. I was like, of course they're gonna want me. Like, I'll do marketing for them and I'll run for them. It'll be best of both worlds and it's gonna happen. And I think I just, maybe I was too, I I don't know what, (laughs) like, to really think about it would take like a lot, but I remember going to someone at the company and being like, This is what I wanna do. And then being like, you have to choose. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know. I don't really wanna choose. Like, this is not, I was like, this isn't working for me. And I don't remember where I saw, I think I saw somewhere that said, like, never give up on something you can't go a day without thinking about. And that resonated with me so much. And so the summer before, when we had one athlete who was like training for Reebok and I was training with her, I ended up qualifying for the final in the 1500 at the 2018 Outdoor USAs. So I knew I was good enough, and I was the only unsponsored person in that field. So I really had this belief, but and I fully like, felt very confident strong in my running ability belief. It was more of this barrier to convince people who didn't know a lot about running that I could do both, and that they should ping me for both and which is so funny thinking about this like tracksmith um arrangement with mary kane and nick willis with their employees and running i'm like i was like i tried i tried to do that um but you know inevitably like they're all amazing people who work there and um i wish them all the best um was just the people that i was communicating with like it was really hard. I was like, okay, I'm gonna work and like get my full benefits and everything, which, you know, maybe just was too big to think at the time. But I think it could have worked. And I wanted it to work, but there's a difference between like wanting something and being like understanding all the elements involved. And I think there was definitely an element of me not understanding all the factors at play. But um I I do think I would have been valuable for that team and I was pretty heartbroken when I like was told that it wasn't going to work out. But after that, I mean I was pretty I was grateful for one of my mentors at Reebok for saying that and he said, "Go shop yourself around." Like go. Like if you think this is happening and you think you're worth something, like prove it to them. Like, you know, like people don't there's no, no one's just going to give you this. No one's just going to give you like a 401k and a professional running job, you haven't proven it. You made one US final. Like, who do you think you are? And I was like, oh, yeah, good wake up call. Like, who do I think I am? Why do I think this? So I ended up shopping myself around. I got two offers um, and I went to them and said, I have an opportunity to do this. And I thought they would be like, no, don't leave. Stay with us. And I was, I at that time, I was working in a different role, which was less related to running. And they're like, good for you, go. It's like, all right, I I will. It's time. And when I quit, I thought it was going to be this. And I don't know if you've ever ever quit a job. You think it's like a really emotional thing. (laughs) At least this is my experience. I thought people would be like sad and fighting for me. And everyone's like, okay, there you go. (laughs) And I think that was like a lot of young professional, not really knowing how the world works at the time, going on a play. Um, and I'm, but I'm happy I went through all those experiences. You know, I think I was way more prepared to be a professional runner, having that kind of chaotic work-life running, balance running at six in the morning, finding training partners, figuring it out, trying to make something work, a dream, but really not knowing the right methods to go through it. So. It definitely wasn't a fluid gear as far as running and things like that, but there were people who were, along the way, everyone I told that I wanted to run professionally, no one said, that's a bad idea, don't do it. And that's when I knew that I was like, okay, you should
1: do it. Was there anyone who was really supportive of you? I mean, you spoke to the person at Reebok who kind of gave you a gut check. But was there anyone who was like, yes, Dana, I see the potential in you? Or did you have to yeah. do that for yourself?
0: No, no, definitely not. I mean, even the people at Reebok that told me, like, it's not going to work, this running and working thing, and it's not going to work, like, you running for Reebok, they were still really supportive of my running. They're like, if that's what you need to do, you should do it. So I give them a lot of respect in that manner. Um, Especially the two people I worked under at Reebok, like the people I worked on the, under the product team, like they were like, "You have to you got to do it, you know, And I think it's because they were in the running world. they know about the time window. Like if you're gonna do it, you do it now. like you do it when you're young, when you have full potential and you can lean into it. So, and my parents were exceptionally supportive, you know, um, friends and family, my Dartmouth coaches. So I kind of had this like very large support system of people like, go for it, you know? Because when I kind of put my mind to something, it's I'm not going to let it go. And they're like, what's the worst that can happen? You get injured, you have to go back and get another job. You tried, right? I think sometimes we're so afraid of trying.
1: Let's take a quick break to share with all of you about Gooder. Gooder makes the best sunglasses, seriously. They have the coolest designs with colors and looks that suit whatever style you're going for, all of which just look amazing. I have so many pairs of gutters that I use for every occasion. I run in them, I ski in them, I cycle in them, and I walk my dog in them. Also, everywhere I go these days, I constantly see friends and strangers wearing gutters, and it just makes me so happy. My favorite Gooder sunglasses are the OGs, specifically the Sunbathing with Wizards frame, and even the name of the model is incredible. And the reason we all have Gooders is that they're polarized and they don't slip or bounce around when you're moving. Finding sunglasses that look good but also remain comfortable and functional when exercising used to be really hard until Gooder. The best part is that everyone can own a pair with a ridiculously affordable pricing starting at $25. Yes, the best performance sunglasses on the market are also the most affordable. If you want to try a pair of your own, head over to gooder.com slash rue. No discounts because they're already the best priced sunglasses around. Okay, let's get back to our conversation with Dana. So what has it been like to be focusing on running fully over the past year since joining BAA? Yeah, so I had a pretty
0: tough First couple months, uh, I think I was probably in some sort of like energy deficiency from like a higher level of training. Um, just an, maybe like an overtraining syndrome, like not nothing formally diagnosed like that, but just more like I had never Olympic lifted in my life, and I think when I came on, I kind of had this like pretty emotional experience through looking at multiple teams, acting as my own agent like trying to figure things out that I don't think I realized how much that like four or five months was already like emotionally exhausting. So by the time I was all in and ready to run, I was probably like pretty tired to start. And then I started a pretty high volume training plan with a pretty intense lifting program that I had missed like the fall support of. So I didn't have a great fall of... I probably didn't, I mean, I had decent fall, I guess, but not at the level of what it takes to be a professional runner. So the foundation was unstable, let's just say. And things were going pretty well, but unfortunately I got injured like two days before Peyton Jordan. And it was some sort of weird lower leg calf stuff that was flaring up. And after that, I didn't really get my rhythm back and... Um, until after USA. So the whole season was pretty, like, frustrating as far as, oh, what I said before, like, I was used to you train, you work hard, you PR. That's how it works. Like, every year you just get better. And I don't think I fully understood the frustrations of, oh, I worked hard and it's not working. But that later in the summer, I ended up tearing my planner getting a pretty uh, severe, injury, ignoring it for like probably at least three to four weeks, running the Fifth Avenue mile with a torn planner, which is probably one of the most painful experiences of my life. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I came out of that with a better perspective and understanding that like, okay, this is your profession. You have to take care of your body. You have to advocate for yourself and um,
1: things have been going
0: really well since.
1: So, I've had planner issues. So, I want to geek out for a moment. Mm-hmm. How did you rehab from a torn planner? Did yeah. Did you do any regenerative medicines? Like, how were you able to get your foot and body back to a point where you're now? Yeah. So, able to I train?
0: never had any injuries except for a pretty bad planner. Flashy had a flare up like summer leading into my senior year of cross country at Dartmouth. And I ended up getting two cortisone shots in my planner, which. Four years later, you realize it's not an ideal thing to do. Because there is some proof that it does weaken the planner. But I got it from this orthopedic specialist who worked with NBA players and triathletes, and it really did was a great band aid for a long time. Um, but after our, I tore the planner, I saw an amazing physical therapist that the BA sent me up with. His name is Ed Lassert. He worked for the Celtics for like over 20 years. And he just was this incredible resource that like did a lot of manual therapy, and I also had to my ankle joint because I when I tore it, it was from wearing spikes too many times. So I, I think I wore spikes like four times in like ten days. Really, like, it was like pretty bad. <laughs> it was a very painful experience, and so he did a lot of manual therapy, but it wasn't getting better. And like very very sweet and like attentive and my strength coach was giving me so many things and I was just, spent like two and a half months just being like kind of frustrated. I was like, what, what is happening? Like I did it, I like, I went to zero running, I took three weeks off, I was on G. we're doing manual therapy every day. Like what is happening? Like why, why is there still so much pain? And I ended up like getting an MRI. Like I saw, a podi- I saw this podiatrist and he was so
1: mean to me. he <laughs> won. I saw a podiatrist that was mean to me too. <laughs> yeah. Should we call him out? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this podiatrist that was mean to me was like, um, yeah, something's probably torn. Like you should get an MRI. So I was like, okay, I got the MRI. So I go back to him with the MRI scan and he was like, well, it's partially torn and then you have this other stuff going on. And I was like, okay, well, what do I do? And he was like, you should probably just stop running. And I was like, yeah, but like, what next? Like, what do I do next? And he's like, well, you could get shockwave. And I was like, is that a good idea? Are there other options? Like, what else can I do? He's like, you should just take, he gave me no functional steps at all. I was like and he basically, he was um, good friends with the PT uh, from another part of life and, he was like, oh, Ed will help you. I'm like, but I'm like, you're the doctor. Like, and I think that's like an issue with sports medicine, is that it's not really a connected circle there. So I ended up seeing this specialist um, in Newton. And he was like, oh, your like metatarsal function is pretty weak. So they did this weird test where they put these cards under your toes. It's like a white card and then they pull it and you're supposed to like push your toes down and hold it to see if you can. And I guess I had like zero toe strength at all. And he's like, yeah, like it's not going to get better. At this point I started running like a little bit. He's like, it's not going to get better until you strengthen the whole foot. So I started doing these like foot strengthening exercises and it eventually got better. But yeah, it was a pretty frustrating period of time. I spent a lot of time on the Ultra G. Yes, the sweat machine.
1: Yeah. The altered G. I've, I've been there. Um, wow. That is super frustrating. But I never
0: got shockwave. I've never got PRP. Okay.
1: Yeah. And what, I mean, what I'm hearing from you, it's also when that's your focus as a runner mm-hmm. and to not be able to do it, that's a really scary thing. Oh Did my it gosh. feel scary? I went into this
0: productivity mode. And so I work with a sports psychologist. And so you know, looking back, and it's so funny. Like I literally like woke up every morning, meditated, and then did like these. I was on a very strict program. Like I was in my own personal version of like boot camp every day. Like, woke up, meditated, ate a good breakfast, drank a coffee, went to the gym, did the altar did the whole thing. And I think a lot of people, runners especially, who get injuries, do that. Where you get into this mode of like must fix everything immediately. And that just, like, wasn't working for me. It, it, that's when I got to that point where I got the MRI results and was like, well, it is torn. What do you do about it next? And I think it just was time, really. I don't know. There's not really a... I mean, if I, like, push it, it hurts now. But I, I got a new coach in December, so my old coach left, and that was a pretty big change. But he just... Did a really good job of slow, incremental, increasing of volume. Uh, we went to Flagstaff in January this year, slowly bringing me back up, not doing as much as everyone else, keeping me in check. So I have a lot of respect to that. And I ended up running a personal best this winter in the 3K after all of that. And I think it was just this, like, much slower return to running that really helped it. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know if there's any, I don't have any advice for you on your planner
1: struggles. Oh yeah, no, I'm on the other side of it. I just think it's like- I Or anyone. Injury, yeah, I think injuries are just really interesting and in what they bring up for us both mentally and physically. And you spoke to earlier, like you run your best when you're happiest. hmm yeah.
0: And I think I was not, it's not that I was unhappy this fall doing that. I think I was just more of, not letting like other things into my life. Like I was so singularly focused and now thinking about it in COVID, I'm like, we think about this every day. I'm like, wish I had more fun this fall. I wish I like went to that concert instead of was like, oh, I probably shouldn't spend the money, you know? Like I wish I did all those things because that's really when you, you do perform your best in my opinion is when you're fully engaged and happy and doing everything.
1: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. I mean, I know as a professional runner, a lot of people's contracts are Mm -hmm. contingent upon race performances. Mm -hmm. And proving yourself through races, what has it been like for you as a runner and a human being during this time?
0: Yeah, as far as contracts, I feel like I'm pretty fortunate to be a part of the BAA and kind of a larger organization. Um, Get back to me when my contract ends. But I think I feel very supportive from my club and kind of um, my coach. And like we've had a really good, I think it's really strengthened our relationship coach-athlete over this time. We've both been away. It's all been over the phone. But just like constantly checking in, like even if you have nothing to say, I think we've done. I feel like I've still been able to improve my relationship with my coach at a distance, um, But at the beginning, it was very stressful, especially with running. But as soon as the Olympics were moved, I think everyone kind of just breathed. Because my biggest concern was Massachusetts is pretty bad. Yes, I'm well-supported, but there's no unlimited money here. We can't just escape to altitude and camps forever, you know? And I just really did not want the Olympic trials to be a case of the haves and the have-nots. And I'm definitely not a have-not, for sure, but I want, it, I want it to be even. I want to show up to the Olympic trials on that day and it to be a race that's fair. And if Bowerman gets to run on their private track at Nike and do time trials and races with timers and get Olympic qualifying standards and run really fast all the time, that's not fair because I can't do that and other people can't do that, you know? And I mean, they were extremely respectful of COVID and didn't do that. But in the beginning, it kind of looked that way, that some people were going to be able to be business as usual. And it's been super state dependent. And even in Massachusetts, like, I have to run with a mask every day here. We, We wear bandanas and buffs and we'll pull them up when we pass people. But I have like wicked allergies. It's awful, you know? So... Yes, it's frustrating that the Olympics are moved. Yes, it's a horrifying, devastating time for everyone. But one, the year does benefit me. That time to have another year under my belt, like I'm in a prime age. I'm more empathetic to the people that were either ready to retire, that have really challenging situations, don't have the support, don't have the funding to continue. So every time that I try to check, hear myself like, me complain a little bit, I'm like, You got to shut up because you are so lucky. And I think COVID's made it very easy to be like, I am exceptionally fortunate. And my biggest struggle is like about identity right now of, I'm a professional runner training for whatever floating race in the future. That's my personal struggle. But
1: if that's my biggest issue, I'm fine. When you think about the Olympic trials... Next summer, what do you think about when you think about that day? Like, what is your goal?
0: Yeah, so I I sometimes get made fun of, they're like, Dana, you have the craziest expectations every time you race. They're like, yeah, you go into a race and you're like, we're all going to PR, we're all going to get the Olympic standard, we're all going to break four minutes. And they're like, yeah, sometimes that's just like unreasonable. So I'm more of someone that dreams like massive. So like when I see myself in the Olympic trials... I see myself with a flag over my shoulders. Like, I really do. And I think there's a very distinct difference between a dream and a goal. And that's my dream, to be an Olympian, to wear the U.S. flag, to do the victory lap. Like, that's a dream. Tangible goals, on the other hand, are daily, they're monthly, they're weekly, you know? So my goal is to make the final and then see what happens. And when I get to that final, I'm going to make a goal to make the team. My number one goal is right now I want to make the Olympic trials final and my dream is to make the team so I think I've had to make this very distinct difference between the two because so I think we should all dream and we should all dream like huge and large and big but you have to have reasonable goals and you have to have productive goals to get there so my goals are to stay healthy to incrementally be better I have daily goals that I try to accomplish um so I do them every day Absolutely not. I have weekly goals, also don't accomplish them all the time, but I like to at least write it down and try to do that.
1: And while we're here right now, we're in June, like Mm -hmm. what is a goal or goals you have for June specifically in your running? Yeah, so the goal for June
0: is just to like enjoy it, you know. My, My coach gave the best advice. He was like, just have a glass of wine at the end of the day, you know. Enjoy it, you know. So... There are no specific like time trial or racing goals or anything like that, but it's just more of when you're at practice, be really present. And it's that one time that you can almost shut out the rest of the world and be really lucky to not have to think about other things. Um, so that's, yeah, I think I don't really have a goal right now as far as it's more about like staying accountable to my nutrition, staying accountable to my extra little things that I have to do, not slacking on those, because we're not with each other. So those are the things that I have to do, is make sure that I check all the boxes on the normal stuff. Yeah.
1: Let's take a quick break to share with all of you about X Endurance. If you tune into Rue regularly, you know that I adore X Endurance, as they make a range of health and nutrition products that support my training and recovery. One of my favorite products that X Endurance makes are their Hydro Now have you been looking for electrolyte solution that's going to keep you hydrated all summer long? Well, HydroStix got you covered. I always have a packet of HydroStix in my backpack or wallet so that I can just put one packet in my water bottle during or after my workout. HydroStix contains just one gram of sugar compared to leading energy drinks, which might contain up to 32 grams of sugar per serving. Combined with premium electrolytes, HydroStix contain an ingredient called sestamine. This powerful ingredient promotes increased absorption of water into your cells, helping improve your muscle recovery and energy. HydroStix also targets muscle cramping, and they can just be taken at any time that you need to rehydrate and recharge. I'm also obsessed with the Hydrostix grape flavor, which makes adding electrolytes into my water bottle just totally delicious. To experience X Endurance's Hydrostix for yourself, you can receive up to 10% off when purchasing it at shop.teamxnd.com running on which is linked to in this episode's show notes. Okay, let's get back to our conversation with Dana. <music> What is your favorite workout? Like when you get to work out and you find out you have this workout, you're so stoked. I really like split Ks.
0: Ooh. So it's like you break up a 1K into two parts. So you'll run 600 meters, jog 100, then run a hard 400.
1: So like kind of a speed endurance type of workout. And how many would you want, like split Ks? How many reps would be like the perfect amount? Like three or four.
0: But like at race pace or faster, it's like the first one probably starting and like this is would be like a workout you would do like before, like ten days out from a big race. It's like something that just gives you so much confidence that you know you can do it.
1: I love it. I mean, I don't know too much about shorter distance track stuff as you do, so it's cool to learn. Like, <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I mean, workouts. I I've had a new appreciation for the different types of running. Like the long run day is probably still my. Bottom of the list, favorite, not my favorite. People always ask, like, oh, have you ever run a marathon? am like, no, and I don't want to. Yeah, that's awesome. It's not for me. That's but, awesome. Cause I, but I think, like, over time, I'm, like, getting more of appreciation for it. Like, I understand more. Like, every week I go out and run 13 to 14 miles, and it's hard every single time. Like, it's never gotten easier. Um, but now I really like it because you get to go see more and go to cool places and
1: explore. And we're both in Massachusetts. Where is your favorite place to run in Mass? I really like the Holliston Trail. Mm -hmm. So have you been out there? I haven't, but my physical therapist has been telling me about it.
0: Yeah, so it's this, um, you park at this little parking lot side of a coffee shop, which, you know, is the best to start and edit a coffee shop. They have a bathroom, also very convenient. And it's pretty much dirt... And then you run into this tunnel, which was an old train. So if you go in the fall, I'm showing you when this is over. It's like a tree tunnel of just the fall leaves and the dirt. And it's flat, which is great. But I mean, I'm a sucker for trails. I miss trails a lot. I miss Hanover trails.
1: Yeah. I've heard about the Sound of Music Mm -hmm. and Hanover from Abby. Yeah. That is not
0: my favorite run, but I
1: do appreciate it. (laughs) It's a hard run. Yeah.
0: It's very hilly. Yeah. I like this run called Montshire, which technically I think you're not supposed to run at because it's a museum um, and it's super technical and no one, no one on the team really liked to do it except for me and like two of my other friends. So we'd be like, oh, we're going to go do Montshire today. And people are like, oh, I don't want to do that. We'd be like, oh, okay, bye. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and do you ever do that? Oh, totally. You'd be like, oh, we're going to go do this run because you just wanted like a date run. We used to call it like date runs. But sometimes people get offended if you just wanted to run with one person. So you'd totally. be like, oh, we're going
1: to go do Montshire. I'd be like, oh, nah, I don't want to
0: do it. <laughs> I love
1: that. So in your running journey, you've had a lot of coaches and a lot of different teammates. <laughs> Lots of coaches. <laughs> who for you has been like an inspiration for you, whether it be a teammate or coach or someone who's really impacted the way you run or the way you live?
0: Oh, interesting. I think I need to do a little bit more for f- reflecting on my coaches and teammates. Um, I'm going to say, I d- I'm gonna, that's the only one I want to think about maybe journal on later, but I think when things were clicking for us as a team at Dartmouth, um, I so my junior year Abby had left the team and Abby's obviously a phenomenal runner Um, but so the previous year we had won the conference cross country title with Abby and Abby won and she was number one stick and we got like 14th at nationals it was amazing for Dartmouth and I was All-American and things were awesome Um, but the, the thing that I Respect the most is the next year. We didn't have Abby. We didn't have our, like, oh, well, we're only going to get one point because of Abby. And then, but we all kind of rose to the occasion and that team won the conference and we went back to Nationals and we didn't do as well at Nationals. But I think it was something that truly showed to me, and this is something I tried to tell my high school team, and then I probably should tell them more, is just it's not about talent. It's about the team, and that team, every single person, and they, even if they weren't in the top seven, played a role in us getting that championship. And it was we had such a good dynamic. We were having so much fun. Um, all the girls came who weren't even racing, didn't make the Heps roster, came down and watched. And I think it really showed like how much you can lift each other up, and the boat can rise when you're all like invested. And it's really hard to accomplish. And to have a team like that, and you hear about, you hear about this in sports stories constantly, like the team was clicking, we, everything was going our way, like we knew what was happening. And yeah, it's really hard to replicate and you can't force it. You, know, you can't say, we're going to change the team culture. I think a lot of teams, college teams try to do that. Like we have a toxic team culture, we need to change it. No, it's a, it's a few people who committed, and then they brought everyone along with them, and they they figured it out. You know, and sometimes that does take a lot of time, and it's very cyclical. So, I think not a specific person, but just more of the idea when you can all be having a, the same goal and committed to the same goal. That's like the most special part about running.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I know you're one of four children, mm-hmm. which in a sense is like a little team. <laughs> we are a little team. We're very different, but we're a little team. Yeah. Where do you fall on the birth order? I'm number two. Okay. Yeah. How has being in a family of four impacted you?
0: I can't imagine living in a small family. I can't imagine being an only child. I can't imagine quiet in your household. <laughs> No, I. I mean, my family is very, very close. We have a family group me, um, so we talk constantly. I think all of my siblings, maybe not my little brother. My poor little brother it goes three girls and then my little brother. But we are um, all like in constant communication. And honestly, I've gotten a lot closer with my younger sister in the past couple of years since she graduated college. So it's this cool thing where as time goes on, the age gaps feel much smaller. I mean, we're all in our twenties. It goes from 20 to 28. You know, we're all in this eight year span. And when we were younger, it felt like very different. And we were very scheduled children. I have to say like, we all had activities all the time, like practices and things like that. So I had a super ideal like childhood that just like rushed by before my eyes. But now we hang out in cities and we do fun things together. So yeah, I love it. I so I'm grateful for them and I they keep me in check, which is the best part.
1: Totally. And no one else is a runner in your family, correct? Um they
0: run casually, not competitively. Okay. Uh yeah, no. My parents, my mom plays racket sports and golfs, and my dad played ice hockey for probably longer than he should have in golf. But yeah, I was this I was the second child, so I kind of was like the first son-like person before my brother. Yeah. Like the competitive one. Like my dad taught me all the sports. But this is a fun story for you. Bring it. My dad is definitely one of the reasons why I'm as competitive as I am. And so I don't know how much you know about ice hockey, but <laughs> in the NHL, when you win the Stanley Cup, you're only supposed to touch it if you win it. And we were, lucky, we were fortunate we got to go see the Stanley Cup and, like, go take pictures of them. People were touching it and doing all that, because, like, our team, this was in 2003, the New Jersey Devils had won. And so everyone's, like, touching it, whatever. Like, we won the cup, we won the cup. And um, my dad was like, well, you can't touch it. That means you can't win it. <laughs> He's telling his third-grade daughter that he can't touch the Stanley Cup because that I means she didn't win it. And to this day, I tell, I tell so many people this story because I'm like, yeah, I believed him. I believed full heartedly that like, oh yeah, I can't, of course I can't touch it because that means I won't be able to win it one day.
1: I love that. It kind of comes back to the dreams and goals. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that yeah. was also, he was a dreamer.
0: Yeah. You know, maybe I'll own a team one day. Who knows? I'll manifest <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> I love it. Oh my goodness. Okay. And one of my last questions for you, who is someone you want to have in your podcast that you haven't had on yet? Or who's like a Mm. big dream? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, so once I finished the first season, I was going to make this Instagram post, like a handwritten note of all the big people that I wanted. So I actually have thought about this. Um, I think there's two answers to this. But number one is Mary Carrillo, which is very random. She, in the Olympics, was the person, she's also a former professional tennis player, I worked for NBC and she did all the human interest stories. So if you watch like the primetime Olympics, like I've been an Olympics junkie for like since 2008. So after I had my surgery, actually, it was in the summer of 2008 when I was recovering from that surgery, I think I watched probably every single sport of the Beijing Olympics. Like I was laying on the couch, watched the whole thing. Like saw everything. But before they do the, like the big, I don't know, they lead into the prime time with these human interest stories. <laughs> There's probably a better way to say that. But, like, Shamari Curillo got to go to the people's hometowns and interview their friends and family and give you the flavor behind why you should care. And I just thought that was the coolest job. And that was my, like, that was my original Olympic dream, was to be her Aww. and be that interviewer and go and do that. And I think that could still be a, a dream of mine to be some sort of commentator in that way. Um, so definitely her. She's not a runner, so she'll be in season two, which I'll expand a little bit past just runners. Uh, but I think, like, some of the bigger names in sports, too, like your Serena Williams, your Sue Bird, like, people like that, you know? I don't think I have enough confidence yet to really do a larger athlete because I would want to have more of, like, an interpersonal dynamic with them. But I think getting, like, some stud hardcore Megan Rapinoe, like, yeah, people who are doing really, they've achieved the best in the world in their sport and they're doing good for their communities. Like, that's who I'd want to interview. So not a this that word, person, but, you know,
1: just the bigger name
0: women would be cool.
1: Awesome. I'm really excited for you both to just watch your running evolve over the next year and your podcast evolve. Is there anything we haven't touched upon that you want to bring forward? Yeah. Well, thanks for letting me
0: talk. I'm definitely a talker. So I
1: love how you talk. You're great at
0: storytelling. Oh, sometimes when I storytell, I'll get really excited in the beginning and then trail off the end. But no, this was, this was really fun. And um, if you guys want to check out my podcast, it's called More Than Running with Dana. It's on all the podcast spots, but yeah, I think not much more to share. I hope everyone's taking care of themselves and know that this is like a temporary time period and you don't have to be super productive right now. I think that's kind of, um, the beginning of COVID. I felt like I had to be this like hyper productive version of myself to be a professional runner, but letting things go a little bit has helped me a lot, and you can still work hard and train hard, and you can still have a glass of wine.
1: This podcast was made possible with support from my friends at Curix. Curix make comfortable and functional insoles for a range of sports. I am in love with their running and biking insoles, and I've had some of the most consistent running I've had in the past two years since wearing Curix. I've had significantly less problems with my plantar fasciitis. These insoles just take the pressure off and support my feet when I'm running and riding. When my feet are happy, I'm happy. If you want to try a pair of Curix for yourself, visit their website www.curix.us. Enter the code RU15 to get 15% off. And if you're not happy with the insoles, even if you custom cut them for your shoes, Curix offers a 60-day warranty. How amazing is that? This episode was also sponsored by Gooder. Gooder makes the best performance shades for whatever outdoor activities you enjoy. Whether you run, hike, cycle, ski, or you just want to look good when taking your dog for a walk, Gooder has you covered. Gooder sunglasses are polarized, they don't slip or move around when you're exercising. Seriously, they're the best. The team at Rue, we all love Gooders. We own multiple pairs because they not only look amazing, but they actually remain comfortable when exercising. Gooder shades are ridiculously affordable, starting at $25. Yes, just $25. So head over to gooder.com/rue. You can grab a pair of your own or multiple pairs. No discount needed, as they're already the most affordable performance shades around. And lastly, this podcast was made possible with the support from my friends at X Endurance. X Endurance makes a range of delicious and high-quality products to support your daily training and health. This summer, their Hydra Sticks has been my go-to electrolyte solution. I put in one packet of Hydra Sticks grape flavor and my water bottle during or after a workout, and I feel totally refreshed and recharged. To experience X Endurance's Hydra Sticks yourself, you can receive up to 10% off when purchasing it at shop.teamxnd.com slash runninganome, which is linked to in this episode's show notes. By supporting sponsors of this podcast, this allows me to keep sharing these conversations with incredible women like Dana. Thank you to all those who will check out Curix, Gooder, and X Endurance. Dana, she's amazing. Her positivity, her stories, her wisdom on goals and dreams really inspired me. And I hope you'll check out her podcast more than running. She is an incredible interviewer, and she has such a thoughtful and uplifting way of interacting with her guests and featuring the untold stories of female athletes often missed by traditional media. If this conversation resonated, reach out to Dana and I on Instagram, and please share this conversation with a friend, a coworker, a family member. Nothing beats word of mouth in helping the podcast grow. If you're still with me in the outro, if you're still listening, you know that I read every iTunes review that's written, and I really do take your feedback to heart. Here in the outros, I feature a listener review. If it's your review and you reach out after hearing it, I'll send you a little something via snail mail. On July 2nd, APA Warren writes, I loved the first iteration of Running a Gnome and was thrilled when the podcast returned. The interview style is soothing to me, always engaging, and covers topics relevant to my life. The new focus on women in fields of sport and outdoors is inspiring and uplifting. I have so much gratitude for this podcast. Thank you, APA Warren, for your thoughtful review and for being a long-time listener. I am grateful for you. Please reach out to me at runninganome at gmail.com with your address, and I'll send you a little something via mail. Leaving iTunes reviews, they're just a huge help in spreading the word about the podcast. I thank you if you've already left a review, and if you haven't done so yet, it'll take you less than two minutes, and it's going to make my day. Next week's podcast will be my monthly Soul Sister Sessions with Abby Cooper, which is always a joy to share with all of you. Thank you, thank you to the incredible podcast team that makes Root a reality. That's Nick Errol for podcast management, Tim Briggs for design, John Summerford for audio production, Caitlin Marie Minor Ong for illustration, and my album artwork. Thank you to this team. Thank you, yes, you for still listening. Lots of love and gratitude. <laughs>